Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, Happy New Year to you all. Well, this week we have another case which is crazy. Crazy in that how the police bungled the original investigations, how the cases went cold and then went hot many years later, and then a surprise confession which will link one final case to all the others. Also, there will be suspects that will have their lives changed forever, even after the real killer is found. So... References tonight are from Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Time Record News, The Herald News, Austin American Statesman, my favourite, The Forensic Files, kick this one off, and Court Records. Okay, so we go to Texas this week, mainly in Wichita Falls, where between December 1984 and May of 1986, four women will be brutally murdered with three of the four sexually assaulted, and then there will be a fifth victim added to this toll. In December of 1984, 20-year-old Terry Sims was a student at Midwestern State University and also worked as an EKG specialist at Bethania Hospital. On the night of the 20th of December, she and a friend, Lisa, finished their shift at the hospital and planned to exchange Chrissy Prezies with their friends. Now, Chrissy Prezies is Australian for Christmas presents. However, Lisa got called in to do another shift, and so she drove Terry to her place and gave her the key. The next morning, after finishing the extra shift, Lisa knocked on the door to her place, but no one answered. Now, Lisa then went to the landlord's room, it was just a couple of doors down from her, to grab the extra key. Then Lisa opened the door and noticed that the living room was in disarray. Terry didn't respond when Lisa yelled her name, so she ran back to the landlord's residence and told him that something was wrong. The landlord then entered Lisa's room and discovered Terry Sims' dead body. Terry was found lying naked on her left side in a pool of blood on the bathroom floor. Her hands were bound tightly behind her back with part of an extension cord that was tied in four knots. Her body was covered in blood and there was blood splattered on the bathroom walls and floor. The living room and front bedroom were in disarray. There were blood stains on the bed sheets and the floor of that front bedroom. Terry's bloodstained clothes were on the floor in the living room and the bedroom. Terry had eight stab wounds on the front of her chest, three stab wounds on the right side of her back, one stab wound on her upper arm and defensive cuts on her hands and fingers. An autopsy would show that Terry sustained most of these stab wounds after her assailant tied her hands behind her back. Terry also had bruises on the bridge of her nose, her lips and above the left side of her cheek and eye. These bruises were consistent with her being struck by a fist or by her falling and banging her head on the floor. Terry also had additional tease wounds which were inflicted by her assailant to get her attention. At least one of Terry's stab wounds caused hemorrhaging when it punctured a major artery and that other stab wounds caused her lungs to collapse, which prevented her from breathing. Terry probably died from these injuries within two to four minutes after they were inflicted. 
there was a presence of sperm on the oral and vaginal swabs taken from her body. Also, a bloody fingerprint was found on one of Terry's tennis shoes. Well, it was more of a print from the bottom of the top knuckle to the bottom of the second knuckle, further down the finger. Then, less than a month later, on January the 19th, 23-year-old Tony Gibbs was reported missing after failing to report to work. She'd last been seen at around 6am, leaving her work at Wichita General Hospital, where she was a nurse. At five foot one, she was a former high school homecoming queen and cheerleader who came to Midwestern State University to study art. At first, she wanted to study art after graduating from Clayton High School in New Mexico. And on a visit to her brothers in Wichita Falls, she visited MSU and loved it. She submitted a portfolio and won a scholarship. Two years in and she decided to become a nurse graduating in 1984. She worked at Wichita General Hospital and was very conscientious. Her mother said she cared in her heart about her patients. She was close to her family and loved art, music, jogging and bicycle riding and everyone was her friend and they could depend on her. There was a massive search for Tony and a couple of days after she went missing, her 1984 Chevy Camaro was found in the 2000 block of Van Buren, not far from the hospital. No useful fingerprints were found, but in the car was her purse and driver's license, things you'd never leave if you decided to leave town. Her car offered no other useful evidence. Then after a month of searching on February the 15th, utility workers found Tony's body in an Archer County field, not far from the Wichita County line. There was an old rusted out, it looked burnt out school bus nearby, now, they found her blood and clothes in that school bus. Now, Tony's body was found a short distance from the bus. It looked like she'd still been alive when left by her killer, probably in the bus, and then she tried to crawl away to safety. She had three stab wounds on her back, three stab wounds on her chest, and two defensive wounds on her left forearm and thumb. She'd been raped and semen samples were taken for DNA analysis. And then there was a huge break in the case. 24-year-old Danny Laughlin worked at the club that Tony had last been seen. Well, she'd been seen there previously before her work, but this is the last time she'd been out. And when interviewed by police, he seemed to know, this is Danny, know too much about the case. Now, Danny was a part-time stripper and a bit of a player. Other people police interviewed also mentioned that Danny would tell them this and that about the case. He'd also been seen riding his motorbike through the field Tony was found in and lied to police, telling them he'd never been there before. And he also failed a polygraph examination. He again lied about riding through the field to an Archer County grand jury and he would face perjury charges when later exposed by witnesses who had indeed seen him. In August of 85, Danny would be convicted of perjury and burglary charges and sentenced to a term of two to seven years. But that was nothing. On October the 7th, Danny is indicted on murder charges of Tony Gibbs, even though his DNA was not a match for the semen samples taken from Tony's body. All the evidence the prosecution had was circumstantial, but they pressed ahead anyway. Now, his trial would start in April of 1986, and Islanders 
don't you think this is a bit bit of a strange move by the prosecution? DNA doesn't match. No real evidence, just circumstantial. Oh, and it was also reported in April of 1985 that Tony Gibbs and the Terry Sims cases were unrelated. But a couple of weeks before Danny Laughlin is indicted, 21-year-old Ellen Blau goes missing on September the 20th, 1985. Ellen was remembered by her mum as a stubborn baby, being weeks overdue at birth. Ellen's brother said he remembered wrestling with his sister and learning to ski together and that they were both stubborn, but Ellen was much better at it, asserting what she really wanted to do. He said he'd had a certain kind of she had a certain kind of courage, a courage to pursue something that interested her. She was willing to enter into a conflict with her parents as long as it took. Wonder how many of you listeners out there are like that. At school, she excelled with many certificates of excellence in her file. She was always willing to volunteer for extracurricular jobs and she could read people well with her first impression, usually the right one. She moved from New Jersey to Wichita Falls, Texas and found a job at Sip and Suds 4016 Burke Burnett Road, which is now a Delhi planet. She was also a student at Midwestern State University in Wichita Falls. Ellen moved from sharehouse to sharehouse and had just put a deposit on her own unit and was about to move in when she went missing. Now, Ellen had a few boyfriends, most of them deadbeats that she would leave, but she just started dating a Navy diver named Greg Warner. On September the 20th, Ellen finished her shift at Sip and Suds around 10.30pm and with the restaurant manager, her boyfriend and a co-worker, they had after-work beers at the Pizza Inn, which is just down the road. They were the last people to see her alive. Ellen's boyfriend, Greg Warnock, and the Subs and Suds manager, Curtis Cates, had an argument and Ellen drove Greg back to the Navy base where he lived. Then she returned to the Pizza Inn to rejoin the group. They stayed until midnight when it closed up. At 12.20am, Ellen told her friend she was going home. But 10 minutes later... Her 1980 Volkswagen Rabbit was seen circling the parking lot at the county store at 4430 Burke Burnett Road by a Shepherd Regional Hospital employee driving home from work. The next morning, a bread truck driver noticed her car in the parking lot while making an early morning delivery and he knew Ellen hadn't shown up for work. Ellen was then reported missing. A road crew employee found Ellen's body in a field in Wichita County near East Road on October the 10th. Her body was decomposed from lying in the heat for three weeks and had been ravaged by coyotes and other animals. She was identified by dental records but her father had already identified the jewellery found on the scene. It also looked like she'd been sexually assaulted as her clothes had been ripped off and left a distance from her body. But first, let's go to April the 8th, 1986, and the trial of Danny Lachlan for the murder of Tony Gibbs. Now, as I said before, the prosecution had only circumstantial evidence, and the DNA found on Tony's body, the semen samples, didn't match Danny's DNA at all. The jury, after hearing all the evidence, would deadlock at 11-1, with only one juror thinking he was guilty. 
He was acquitted and the judge ruled a mistrial. Even though the prosecution wanted another trial, eventually all charges were dropped and no other trial would be held. Danny had brought all this attention on himself. He'd inserted himself into the case, maybe to, I don't know, show off and act like he knew things about this case, whatever. He didn't do the crime, but it pretty much ruined his life. Just a month after Danny's trial on May the 6th, 1986, 21-year-old Tina Kimbrew was found dead in a ransacked Park Regency apartment. Tina was born in Houston in 1964 and lived in Vernon and Odessa. She graduated from Odessa Permian High School in 1982. She was a member of the Church of Christ. Tina recorded the highest score in the junior division for 9 to 10 year olds in the annual Wilbarger County Dress Review. I don't know what that is. I think it might be something like, I don't know, a small fashion show or something. Please tell me, listeners, if you've been to a review. Neighbours told police that they'd seen a white man, six foot two, with dark brown hair and wearing a baseball cap, leave Tina's apartment complex about five hours before her body was discovered. And it was Tina's grandmother, Mildred, and her cousin, Shane, who found her body. She was on the floor next to the lounge and had been suffocated by a large pillow. Tina had numerous bruises on her face, neck and legs. Her nightgown was pulled up above her waist and her underwear was on the floor near her body. However, there was no evidence of recent sexual activity. As I said before, her apartment had been totally ransacked. There were no signs of forced entry, so investigators theorised that she knew her assailant. Danny Laughlin wasn't considered a suspect because the description of this guy seen leaving her apartment didn't match him at all. Then shortly after Tina was murdered, three days later on May the 9th, police get a phone call from 27-year-old 6'6", Farian Wardrip, who is about 400 miles from Wichita Falls in Galveston. Now, there's a couple of different versions of this, but what the one I think is true is that he told them he was going to kill himself. Now, when police turned up to his place, he actually ends up confessing to Tina Kimbrough's murder. Wardrip was a drug addict and an all-round no-hoper after dropping out of high school. He'd been in the National Guard for about six years and it looked like it was pretty much kicked out for smoking pot and going AWOL. In 1983, he got married to 20-year-old Yana Jackson and had a couple of kids, but the marriage broke down in December 85 because of his drugs and alcohol. He worked as a janitor and then as an orderly at Wichita Falls General Hospital the same place Tony Gibbs worked. In an interview with investigators, Wardrip said he'd first met Tina Kimbrew at a bar and had become friends over time. She was a shoulder to cry on, and he could talk to her about his problems with his marriage, you know, his wife leaving him, she's taken all the kids, and all of his addictions. He said he'd gone to her place, but he was off his face on drugs and alcohol, and when Tina opened the door, he forced his way in. Now, Tina wouldn't let him stay the night, and this set him off in a violent rage. Things got out of hand, and he ended up smothering her with a pillow. Wardrip claimed to have killed Tina because she reminded him of his ex-wife, Yona. Now, at this stage, 
Even though we have also had the murders of Terry Sims, Tony Gibbs and Ellen Blau, all these cases were being investigated by different police departments and no one had sort of linked them together yet. In fact, now get this, while being questioned about Tina Kimbrough's murder, Waldrip was asked if he knew Ellen Blau and he said yes. But this line of questioning didn't go any further. It's just crazy. Now, after the trial, Wardrip would be given a 35-year sentence, which sounds mm, pretty good okay. Now, while in prison, he became a Christian and got his high school diploma. Now, get this. In 1997, he was paroled after only 11 years inside. Now, this was much to the process of Tina Kimbrough's father, Robert Kimbrough. 11 years. I mean, this makes your blood boil, doesn't it? Okay, he's on parole, so theoretically he is serving his sentence outside. But 11 years, he should be inside. He's killed somebody. Anyway, Wardrip moved to Olney, Texas, and that's near Fort Worth. He would get a job at Olney Screen and Door Company, and trying to fit in, Waldrip became a Sunday school teacher at Hamilton Church of Christ. He got married again and told church goers that his electronic monitoring device he wore around his ankle was because he was convicted of accidentally killing a woman in a car crash. He was known as a hard worker and spent most of his free time at the church. Then a cop called John Little, who'd known Tony Gibbs, in fact, he'd been on the search for her body when he, before he was a cop, was going through cold case files and wanted to find her killer. Plus, there were all these other unsolved murders carried out at around the same time of Terry Sims and Ellen Blau. Tony Gibbs and Terry Sims had semen swabs that still existed in their respective evidence boxes. When they were both tested with the latest technology, they matched. Now, little knew that he had one killer for at least these two cases. Now, as he went through the files, he noticed that Farian Wardrip, who'd been convicted of murdering Tina Kimbrew, had links to these other three murders. He saw the comment in the Tony Kimbrew file where Wardrip was asked if he knew Ellen Blau, and he said that he did know Ellen. Now, Ellen Blau's sister lived just down the road from Terry Sims, Also, Wardrip worked at Wichita General Hospital at the same time that Tony Gibbs worked there. So Little found out that Wardrip was living and working in Olney, so he went and tracked him down. Now he needed to get a DNA sample without him really knowing because he didn't really want to tip him off, but he sort of had to do it legally as well. Little watched as Wardrip ate crackers and drank a coffee during a break at work. He then saw him throw the coffee cup in a big bin, a big barrel, and he went over to get it, but Wardrip was still there. Now, Little asked if he had a spit cup to spit his chewing tobacco in, and Wardrip told him to look in the bin. When Little looked in the bin, there was a lot of <laughs> a lot of coffee cups in there, but there was only one with cracker crumbs on it. So he grabbed it, and then he got that one DNA tested. It came up as a match to the semen samples found on Tony Gibbs and Terry Sims. Well, the the DNA did. Anyway, Wardrip gets arrested. The bloody fingerprint found on Terry Sims' tennis shoe would match Wardrip as well. 
With all the DNA evidence that the investigators showed him, he confessed to the murder of Tony Gibbs, Terry Sims and Ellen Blau. Then Wardrip would have one more confession to make. He told investigators that on March the 24th, 1985, he killed 25-year-old wife and mother of two, Deborah Taylor, in Fort Worth, Texas. This was just a couple of months after killing Tony Gibbs. Now, Fort Worth is about a couple of hours' drive southwest of Wichita Falls. Deborah had an upcoming birthday to celebrate, combining it with the birthday of her daughter, Jennifer, who was turning five. But these celebrations sadly never happened. Now, Deborah left the house at 7125 Ruth Street on the east side around 2.30am while a couple of friends were visiting and then she went into the city alone and then disappeared. Now, she told no one she was going out and her husband, who was in the house as well, he didn't have a clue either. Her body was found by two construction workers near Loop 820 and Randall Mill Road on March the 29th. 1985. Now, I want to just clear up a little point here. There are reports that Deborah and her husband, Ken, were actually at a club that night and that Ken wanted to go home early, so he left and went home and Deborah stayed at the club. But Ken Taylor actually makes a statement in a newspaper that says they were having a gathering with friends in their own house. Now, maybe something happened, I don't know, but Deborah decided to go out at 2.30am by herself without telling anyone. So by the time they realised she was gone, they had no idea where she went. Anyway, there'd been about 20 slayings of women in this area, Tarrant County, in previous years, so Deborah's murder was just one of those unsolved. Some of the women were found dumped outside parks, parking lots, fields and others were found in their homes. Now, Ken Taylor, Deborah's husband, said, We got an animal running loose on the streets in this town. I hope to God somebody somewhere saw something so we can stop this guy. It was unusual for her to leave that late at night, especially without her purse. She didn't even take out a sweater and it was pretty cold out. Now, Ken, her husband, would become the prime suspect in Deborah's murder. Now, cops didn't have enough evidence to charge him, but they were pretty sure he did it. So did Deborah's family, his own family, and all their friends. Everyone thought he killed her. Now, this made his life hell. He'd not only lost his wife, but he lost all his family and friends. They all hated him. And it would take 14 years or so for Wardrip to confess to Deborah's murder before, I guess, people might have believed him that he didn't do it. I mean, how would you be? Poor old Ken. I wonder what all the family members thought when they found out that he actually didn't do it. So Wardrip would get the death penalty for the murder of Terry Sims, and following that trial, he would be found guilty for murdering Tony Gibbs, Ellen Blau, and Deborah Taylor. Now, he did appeal against his death penalty and apparently he was taken off death row, but then the death penalty was reinstated and he's currently housed at Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Polunsky Unit, Livingston in Texas. Now, not only Ken Taylor's life was ruined from being the prime suspect in the murder of his wife, but remember Danny? He was hounded by police right up until his tragic death in a car crash in Colorado in 1993. 
Now, he didn't live long enough to see Wardrip confess to the murder he'd been tried for all these years before. So, Islanders, another case with some twists and turns. At least when Wardrip was released after only serving 11 of his 35-year sentence for murdering Tina Kimbrew, he didn't go on to kill again like we usually hear. And in the end, he got caught for those other four murders, so he ended up going back inside. Wardrip, he actually thought he should have been caught for the other murders earlier and thought the police were pretty incompetent. Competent as his name was in their files, and he told them he even knew Alan Blau when he was caught on Tina's murder. I suppose the original investigations were carried out by different departments in the days when cases weren't accessible or linked on computer systems. Still, you got to think they should have fucking woken up to these other four unsolved murders in a place that basically didn't have that many murders in the first place. One other thing that linked all these women together was they were all pretty short, pretty young. Apparently, they looked like his ex-wife. Now, luckily, that copper, John Little, was able to link everything together and get this scum wardrip off the streets. Okay, that's it for this week. I'd like to thank my patrons past and present for keeping the island's lights on. We've got a few new ones. Belinda Evans and Libby Loudell. Libby Loudell, long-time listener, has upped her pledge. Special thanks to all my Patreons, present and past. Thank you so much. If you'd like to throw a dollar my way, please check out patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. Or if you just want to shout me a beer, you can donate to paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. A free beer is always nice after dumpster diving into these cases. Thank you so much, Loretta McKinney, for buying me a beer. But can I just ask that you take the time to share the podcast with your friends or even in groups on Facebook or whatever. The Island is one of the few truly independent true crime podcasts out there and commercial free. Because of the straight up nature of how I bring you the show, it doesn't always go well with everybody and social media, the algorithms, all that sort of stuff. So I do rely on you getting the word out there as well. Best of all, you do that free of charge, and it does really help out the island. I'm also listed on Audible and Amazon Music, so please rate and review, review me there if you're on that service. There's a, quite a few podcasts on Audible now, so you might find a better alternative to listening in, especially if you're on iTunes or something. Have a go at something else, especially if you have an Alexa. Go to my website, True Crime Island, where you can stream each episode if you don't want to use any of those streaming services. And I have links to merch, social media there as well. Also, please email me if you want to get in touch. I wish everyone a happy new year from the island. And that's about it, other than I might be getting back to Thailand soon. So let's all cross our fingers. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say... Don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom fucker